Thank you for being here. Thank you for, uh, it looks like we've got plenty of soup today, so I think there'll be a pretty good lunchtime afterward. We're going to start actually with a video here, so if you want to roll that, roll that clip to get us started, get us thinking about imitation. Now is a candid star. These folks who are entering, the man with a white shirt, the lady with a trench coat, and subsequently one other member of our staff will face the rear. And you'll see how this man in the trench coat <laughs> tries to maintain his individuality, but little by little, he looks at his watch, but he's really making an excuse for turning just a little bit more to the wall. Now we'll try it once again. Here's the candid subject. Here comes the candid camera staff, three of them at least. And uh, this man has apparently been in groups before. Here's a fella with his hat on in the elevator. First he makes a full turn to the rear and Charlie closes the door. A moment later, we'll open the door. Everybody's changed positions. <laughs> now we'll see if we can use... We'll see if we can use group pressure for some good. Now, in a moment, on Charlie's signal, everybody turns forward. Notice they take off their hats. And now, do you think we could reverse the procedure? Watch. We laugh, right? We, we laugh partly because the characters just appear so ridiculous. Uh, but if we're more honest, though, I think we laugh because we know we'd probably do the same thing if we were the test subject in the elevator. That's a funny example of conformity. But, you know, they get more serious. In 1951, Solomon Ash conducted what are now famous psychological experiments. Any, uh, any psychology students... In the congregation today, a few of you. Mm. It's kind of sinister, actually, when, when you think about what this experiment tells us about human beings. The procedure was pretty simple. There were eight people that were supposed to answer questions. Basically, it was a matching game. They were to match a line on a card, which is, which is on the left of your screen. They were to match the line with the corresponding line on the other card that had multiple lines. They had a number of these. They do 18 trials. But there was a catch. Well, there was a couple catches, actually. They were supposed to do this in the group, one at a time and out loud. There were eight subjects in the group. Well, actually, there was only one. Seven of them were actors, and only one was a test subject, much like the candid camera clip. The other seven were all actors put in place by the professor himself. 
Sometimes the actors were instructed to unanimously give the wrong answer. The test subject always had to go last. So, in the instances where the previous seven people all gave the wrong answer, and it was obvious that it was the wrong answer, what happened? Well, the goal of the experiment was to see if the test subject would go along with the unanimous crowd, even when it was blatantly obvious that the unanimous crowd was wrong. There were very few test subjects that actually stood up to the peer pressure and still gave the right answer each time. Only about 25% of people. There were also very few people that would, would unanimously go or would go along with the unanimous crowd every single time when they were wrong. But on average, when the unanimous crowd gave the incorrect answer, the f- person that was the test subject would also give the wrong answer about a third of the time, roughly 30%. Think about that. Unanimous crowd gives what is obviously a wrong answer. The person knows that it's the wrong answer, but they still go along with it about 30% of the time. There is nothing more at stake than just peer pressure from a bunch of people you don't even know. And yet one-third of the time, people would willingly go against what they knew to be correct so as not to stand out from the crowd. I find this incredibly troubling. Nothing is at stake, and yet people will willingly say what they know is wrong, what they know to be a lie, just not to stand out from the crowd. If that's what we'll do when there really aren't any consequences, what does that say about what might happen when there are consequences? for going along with the crowd. Right? We all think we would be the people that would, that would lie to the Gestapo and say, oh, no, no, I'm not hiding any Jews in the basement, right? We all like to think we'd be that person. But simple experiments like this show that social conformity is a very powerful force. We will conform, we will imitate, we will go along with the crowd so as not to stick out. We're going to imitate someone or something. The biblical question is, who is it going to be that we will imitate? Well, as Pastor Andrew has already told us, we should imitate Jesus. But let's hear it from the Word of God. If you'd like to stand and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. It's a lengthy passage today, but there's a lot of good stuff in there. Ephesians chapter 5, we'll read verses 1 to 21. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedient. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. 
and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's word. You may have a seat. Right off the start, the Apostle Paul instructs the Ephesian Christians to be imitators of God, which looks like walking properly. Then he uses three images of what walking properly looks like. Walking in love, walking as children of light, and walking wisely. We'll look at these in turn and we'll see how these relate back to what it means to be imitators of God. So first of all, walk in love, verses 1 to 7. First of these images is to walk in love. And it's pretty easy to see how the idea of imitation fits in here. Walking in love means walking as Jesus did, which means living a life of sacrifice. Interestingly enough, walking in love actually tells us a lot about what it is that we're not supposed to do. And it's important that we see this because walking in love is not living a life of anything goes. That's not love. Our culture sees tolerance and acceptance as the ultimate hallmarks of love. But scripture, however, insists that the ultimate hallmark of love is not found in just blanket tolerance or acceptance of anything goes. Rather, the ultimate hallmark of love is found in sacrifice, in the example of Jesus. I think that's why Paul immediately goes to the things that we're to avoid when he talks about walking in love, because he's talking about living sacrificially. It's not the Apostle Paul lapsing back into his legalistic roots as a Pharisee and saying, don't do this and don't do this and don't do that. The logic here is that Christ was willing to lay down his very life as a sacrifice. We ought to at least be willing to lay down our vices on the altar. These vices, at least in this passage, concern three areas. We heard about them in this passage. We heard about many of these in our earlier scripture reading. Sexuality, words, and money. It's pretty common to to lament the changes that have happened in Western culture since the 1960s sexual revolution. But let's not fall into the trap of thinking that before sometime in the 1960s, everything was just perfect and great and no one ever had any trouble in these areas. The Apostle Paul and the Christians at Ephesus lived in a very sexually charged culture as well. 
Temple prostitution was normal. Homosexual relations, especially between men and boys, was considered normal. As in our modern culture, people would have considered and did consider the early Christians to be weird and narrow-minded in their belief that sexual activity outside of faithful heterosexual marriage was unacceptable. And remember the thought progression here. Be imitators of God equals walk in love equals live a life of sacrifice, equals say no to those sexual urges which fall outside God's prescribed way of living for his people. Our culture believes and believes to its core that our feelings and our urges are the ultimate guide and infallible guide to how we should act, right? Love is love, we hear. In the kingdom of God, however, living a life of love might well mean saying no to those very feelings and urges because it's living a life of sacrifice. Scripture has a lot to say about how we use our words. There's one area where I think Christians are far too willing to excuse what amounts to blatant sin, myself included. I think it has to be here. You know what I mean, right? It's true that things like pornography, for instance, are way too common amongst Christians. But at least we know that that's wrong and we feel guilty and bad if we indulge in sins like that. But our words? Gossip? Coarse joking? We're much too willing to excuse or to rationalize or to say we really should be praying for. Now the language that Paul uses here does appear to have some sexual connotations, right? What we might call dirty or vulgar jokes. But he also mentions foolish talk which covers a much broader range of the ways we use words. Let's just think of a couple here. Complaining. Are we way too prone to griping and complaining and blaming and finger-pointing? Is it always someone else's fault? Are we actually looking for solutions when we raise these issues? Or is it more likely that we're, we actually enjoy having something to complain about? Do we kind of like playing that victim card just a little bit too much and a little bit too often? Or how about sarcasm? Right, a little bit of sarcastic humor every once in a while. It can be helpful because it can help us make light of tense and difficult situations because sometimes, you know, if you didn't have the ability to laugh at these things, it, you'd probably cry or become overwhelmed. But it can be so easy for sarcastic responses to become too much, to become cutting, to drag people down and to drag everyone else around you and to become hurtful toward others. And it can become a defense mechanism against actually having to deal with difficult emotions, right? We just be sarcastic. We kind of cast that blanket over difficult emotions instead of actually dealing with them. And it can become an outlet for pride, always needing to have the wittiest response and best comeback to something everyone says. Let's be honest here. The things we partake in really influence how we behave in these areas, It's all about who you imitate, and you will imitate someone, whether you do it consciously or not. That's just how we are. So it isn't legalistic to say no to things that are hurting your soul. That's what sacrifice is all about. So here's the thing. I might have just lied when I said speech was that area where Christians are most guilty of of, of excusing sin, right? Because maybe, maybe it's actually money. I don't know if you've seen... Have you seen the trailer for the movie Bohemian Rhapsody? 
It's coming out. Briarcrest alumni Mark Martell, I heard, sang some of the vocals for Freddie Mercury in the movie. Whenever you might think of Freddie Mercury, it's pretty clear that while he might have been a musical genius, he was also a very troubled soul with a disastrous personal life. Even the other band members in Queen thought that Freddie Mercury was out of control. One commentator about the film said that whatever sort of debauchery they're allowed to show you in that film, it's like a fraction of what Freddie Mercury's actual lifestyle was probably like. And it can be so easy to point to somebody like that out there in the world living a debauched life of orgies and drugs and everything else. Be like, well, there's the sort of thing the Apostle Paul's telling us to avoid. Good thing I'm not like that. And we'd be right. And we'd be wrong. Because look at what the Apostle Paul says in verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure... I'm glad I'm not like that. Or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now that should smart a little bit. Greed, Paul insists, is idolatry. And that's direct, and there's nothing to qualify it, much as we wish there might be. But this is exactly what Jesus taught us, right? You can't serve Two masters, you can't serve both God and money. You'll hate the one and you'll love the other. You'll put the wealth before God and make an idol of it. It's exactly what Paul said here. It's exactly what Jesus said. And that is challenging to us who live in a culture where wealth and the accumulation of more of it drives so much of what we do. Remember where we started this. Being imitators of God means walking in love, which means living sacrificially. And this includes all areas of our lives, even our wealth, because it's not really ours anyhow. So walk in love. Next, walk as children of light. If the walk in love told us some of the things that we're to avoid, this section tells us why it matters. Verse 8 pretty much sums it up. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Paul doesn't even say you used to walk in darkness, but now you walk in light. He says you were darkness, and now you are light. This fits really well with what he said back in chapter 2. He said you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you are alive in Jesus Christ. You see what he's saying? The new life in Christ is a total and complete change. Remember what Pastor Andrew told us last Sunday. It's not just a renovation, repainting the walls or putting down some, some imitation hardwood flooring in your house. This is like burning the old house to the ground and building a new one from the ground up. The darkness light thing isn't just a change of location, although it is that, and that's amazing. But it's more than that. It's a fundamental change in who you are. If you go walking around in the darkness all the time, you will become characterized by darkness. You will become darkness. But if you walk in the light, you'll be characterized by the light. You will actually become, you will take on the qualities of light. You'll be gloriously transformed in your heart, in your soul, in your being. Or at least you should. And that's Paul's point. It matters here how you walk because deeper things are at play than just your personal choices. To continue to live in the ways that we've just discussed is to be false at the very core of your being as a child of God and a follower of Christ and who he's made you to be. 
There's a fundamental contradiction in terms to go on walking in the ways of darkness when you've been made a child of the light. It's like trying to divide by zero. It doesn't work, right? Thank you, Mr. Armstrong. It doesn't work. It's, it's a contradiction in terms. That's why Paul says you, you can't go on living this way. It's to be false and betray who you are. So what do we do instead? Well, thankfully, the Apostle Paul gives us some things that we ought to do instead. He's warned us about the things we should avoid. He's told us why it matters that we do so. And then as we move to the end of the chapter, he explains what we should do instead. Walk wisely, he says. If it's a bit complex when you think about the magnitude of being in darkness and being in light, and, and this is pretty straightforward. First thing he says, pay attention. Watch carefully. Watch how you walk. Right? Be aware of what's going on around you. Don't just passively coast through life, your, your regular everyday life, your life of faith, or anything. God didn't create you for that. Jesus didn't die and rise again for that. The Holy Spirit doesn't indwell you so that you can just go coasting along through life, not even paying attention to how you live. Paul urges his readers to pay attention to how they're conducting themselves in the world. This is so important. If you don't even recognize that you're in bad shape, you're in really bad shape. So let's look at some of the areas Paul wants us to pay attention to. Make good use of your time, he says. That's one aspect of walking wisely. Now, you remember when I said how, how Christians were, were kind of guilty of not paying attention to their words as being a sin we were comfortable with? And then I said how Christians were guilty of maybe being a bit greedy like our surrounding culture, and that was a sin we were really... Uh, maybe making poor use of our time is... Okay, I'll put that on the top of the list now. Are we wasting our time? I'm just becoming more and more convinced about this for myself and for our wider culture, right? how much time do we spend just doing this with our phones? Scroll, 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 hoping to see something interesting on that feed. Or watching sports on TV or watching entire seasons of Netflix in one sitting. Is that making the best use of your time? Is it pleasing to God? Is it walking wisely? Despite what Mark Zuckerberg and all the other movers and shakers of big tech tell you, they aren't all about connecting the world and bringing joy and happiness to all the people. They are about keeping your eyeballs glued to screens for as many minutes or hours a day as they possibly can so that you see more ads so that their companies get more money in their bank accounts. That's how it works. The CEO of Netflix recently said that their biggest competitor... It's not Amazon. It's not network TV that has sports. Their biggest competitor, do you know what they said? Sleeping. <laughs> They've beat all the other competitors. Now the thing they're trying to beat is sleeping. They are willing to engineer a service that they know will do you harm by robbing your body of one of its fundamental needs, and yet they're still willing to do it, to keep your eyes glued to that screen for a little bit longer. Think about that. And I know some of you will say, and we all do, I do too, you say, oh, I just need some, need some time to relax or veg. Or friends, younger friends in particular, let's, be, let's pay attention, let's be aware 
are the things that we're doing in our downtime to chill or relax or veg, are they actually relaxing us or, or are they just distracting us and possibly even making us more anxious and more stressed? I'll stop there, lest this turn into a rant or more of a rant. Unless I really begin to preach way more than I'm actually able to practice myself. But how are we using our time? For pursuing God? For encouraging others? For sharing the gospel? For uplifting the needs of our congregation and our world in prayer? For serving? Again, it's important to pay attention. Don't get drunk with wine or any other substance that may be legal for that matter. We may have different opinions about, about drinking alcohol. Uh, some may partake on occasion. Some may believe that total abstinence is, is the only way to go. I believe that passages such as Romans 14 would tell us that biblically speaking, it's, it's a debatable matter. But here's a statistic for you. Do you want to know how much money Canadians spend on alcohol? Two billion dollars a month. Something like that. It's 1.9 billion or so, but that was last year, so we're probably spending more this year. That is staggering. Two billion dollars a month. Now, I'm not saying this to shame you out of buying a bottle of wine for Christmas dinner, but I am pointing out that overconsumption of alcohol is a real issue. What could our country, and I know we can get a, oh, you know, but the, the, the grain and the, the barley and the rye and the grapes, that's an industry and it, it produces income for people and people work and are employed at breweries and so on and so forth. But think, even half of that money, even a billion dollars a month, what could we do with a billion dollars a month that we were just drinking away? To say nothing of the highway accidents and domestic trouble we would probably avoid. So don't be drunk with wine, Paul says, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't think this necessarily means that the Holy Spirit makes you act as though you are drunk in every case. We see that occasionally in Scripture, but I don't think that's primarily what this text is talking about. I think rather the idea has to do with what you're allowing to fill you. And that matters because what you allow to fill you is ultimately what will control you, right? If you fill yourself with wine, Paul says, that may well lead to debauchery. But if you fill yourself with the Holy Spirit, or rather allow the Holy Spirit to fill you, well, that will probably lead to worship. One of the indicators of whether the Spirit is at work in our lives is our attitude toward worship, are we eager for worship? Are we participating in worship? Do we see gathered worship as an opportunity to be the body? Or do we see it primarily as an opportunity to have our needs met? Of course, when we gather to worship, and we pray or sing praises, we're addressing God. But this passage also reminds us that we are addressing one another. And we didn't plan this, but I thought it was so interesting that, that Ron and Resonant planned a couple of songs where there were different parts today. The song, the one that has the men and the women's part, I think that's a beautiful picture of what Paul's talking about. When we sing praises to God, we're speaking to him, but we can also be speaking to one another, reminding one another of the truths of our faith and who our God is, calling one another to be faithful. Worship is an opportunity to join our voices together and address one another even as we address our Lord, even if not every song is the style you like. So pay attention. Where's your heart at? 
Another thing. Paul already tucked a mention of this back in verse 4, but here he makes it more explicit. Christian lives should be thankful lives. Christian speech should be thankful speech. And again, this requires us to do the first thing Paul urged us to do in this section. Pay attention. Pay attention. If we actually paid attention to all the things that we have to be thankful for on even just an average day in our lives, we'd have a lot of things to talk to our Lord about. Like, a lot, a lot. This is just true in the course of everyday life because of where we live and when we live in history. But it's even more true when we think of what we have in Jesus. Salvation from our sins and the promise of eternal life with him. Be thankful. So we've looked at our calling to be imitators of God as beloved children, which means to walk in love, in other words, walk sacrificially, to walk as children of light, in other words, to live out what we are, and to walk wisely, in other words, to pay attention to how we live. And I think we've had plenty of practical points of application by now. If we were paying attention, I'm sure all of us will have some things in our own lives in the coming week that we can probably work on. What I hope you've been able to see, though, is how all of these things flow, not from some arbitrary or obsolete set of demands that we're just supposed to measure up to, but from the character of Jesus himself. That's where Paul started when he talked about what it meant to imitate God and live a life of love, live sacrificially as Christ did. All of the specifics that Paul talks about in this passage can be traced back to Jesus. Live a sexually moral life. Well, look at how Jesus lived. Look, for instance, at how Jesus treated women with dignity and respect, even in a culture where that wasn't the norm. Live a life of pure speech. Look at how Jesus spoke with truth and integrity and forthrightness and even power, using his words to stand up for the vulnerable and call out those who used their religion to oppress others, lived lives of hypocrisy. Live a life free from greed. Look at how Jesus lived. Nowhere to lay his head with only the clothes on his back at the end. Live a life of worship. Look at how Jesus lived and how he died with worship and prayer to God on his lips. Indeed, quoting words from the book of Psalms as he hung on the cross. Live a life that makes the most of what you're given. Jesus had, we typically assume, about three years of public ministry, and he took that three years and he turned the world upside down. And we're still, we're still affected by that 2,000 years later. Now, some people do get nervous about talk of imitating Jesus. Some of you may even have thoughts like, but, 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 but Jesus isn't just our example, right? He's our Savior, Uh, But we can't really live all that out by our own willpower. You're right. He is, and we can't. But that's that's not how imitation typically works. At least the most powerful types of imitation are often the unconscious ones. Imitation isn't so much about just setting your mind and your willpower to be like, I'm going to be like that person. I'm going to do everything in my power to do so. 
It's often a matter of what we surround ourselves with and what we fill ourselves with transforming us a little bit at a time and a little bit at a time until our friends start noticing you've picked up the mannerisms of, of your favorite professor or you go to live somewhere else and uh, you, you start picking up an accent or you start losing the accent that you had uh, if you've come from a place that, that has typical ways of speaking. You don't set out to intentionally do it, but you start imitating those that surround you. You start imitating the things that you allow to fill yourself. What you fill yourself with and what you surround yourself with is what you will imitate. So let's remember that. We're going to transition to something that will, will help us in that regard in just a few minutes. One of the last things Jesus did was to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples and, and institute what we call the Lord's Supper or, or Holy Communion. And in this congregation, we typically celebrate the Lord's Supper as part of a larger meal. Uh, today, we're celebrating it with a soup and bun lunch following our service. I think this is, this is a really powerful picture of what it means to be aware of what you're allowing to fill you and what you're allowing to surround you. I can think of no better means, really, of making that concrete that will help us become more faithful followers. Because as we partake, we open ourselves to being filled with Christ and all that he has for us. As we remember his sacrificial death for our sins and as we remember his glorious resurrection. As we partake together and as we fellowship around the tables following our service, we surround ourselves with Christ by his body, the church. As we proclaim Jesus' death and his resurrection until he comes again. This matters because what we fill ourselves with and what we surround ourselves with is ultimately what we will imitate. So let's remember that as we partake together. Let's take a few moments to pray. Maybe some of the things we've talked about today have kind of struck a chord in your heart. Some of those things you need to pay attention to. Some of the ways that we can walk in love. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that tells us how to walk. It tells us to walk in love, to walk as children of light, to walk wisely. And Lord, we, we invite your spirit to be active in our hearts today. Lord, we know you are always present. We know you are always with us. But today together, we... we desire for our hearts to be open to your spirit doing his work of conviction and empowering of those areas where maybe we need to pay more attention as your word encourages us to do to pay attention to how we're walking if we're walking carelessly or passively or if we are walking ready and prepared and attentive to what you're doing and what you want to do in us and around us and through us and as we partake of communion today, and as we gather around tables for fellowship, may this really drive home to us 
the importance of what we allow to fill us and what we allow to surround us because that's what we ultimately will imitate. May we know your presence, Lord, as we partake and as we gather together. In Jesus' name, amen. I would invite those who are assisting with serving communion to come forward. Ron and Resonant will lead us in just a moment. As people are coming forward, and if you're visiting with us today, you're new here, I'd just like to make you aware of a few things. The communion table is open to anyone who has confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord. The, the crackers we use are, are rice crackers, so they are gluten-free for those that may have food allergies so that all can partake. Our practice is to hold the elements of communion, first the, the crackers for the bread, and then the cups as well. When those are served, we hold them until all have been served, and then we follow the directive to partake together, and we all partake together at the same time. Scripture tells us that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Andrew, will you pray for the bread? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the message we've heard this morning from your word, Lord, about imitating you, about being filled with you and surrounding the things of you, Lord. And now as we've come to this table, we remember, Lord, what what you did for us on the cross. Your body freely given up for us, Lord, terribly beaten, nailed to the cross for us, Lord, so that we may have freedom in you and only in you that the sting of death, Lord, was nothing for you, Jesus. And so as we partake of this bread, Lord, may we remember your great love for us, your sacrifice for us, and your promise through your resurrection of new life in you, Jesus. We thank you for your sacrifice of your body for us, Lord. Amen. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the light. And through the dark 